This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You are listening to Episode 2 of Quarter Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper, written and read by Nathan Lowell. Previously on Quarter Share. The flitter came apart in midair, you see, the falling debris and uh, remains damaged an estimated square kilometer of vines. I don't want to take up more of your time than necessary, but you need to know where you stand with your late mother's estate. I nodded for him to go on. There isn't one, he said simply. If you're serious, be ready. The Lois McKendrick is coming in late next week. How did one fit a life into 20 kilos? Chapter 2, Neris, 23-51, September 3rd. My PETA trilled sharply, jarring me awake. It was a simple text message from O'Rourke. Time to go. Just as well, really. After almost three weeks, I needed to get on with it before the anticipation drove me crazy, or my money ran out. While the payout from the company had been enough to cover ninety days' rent, I had more than rent expenses to cover, and it was evaporating rapidly. Dealing with the personal artifacts turned out to be part of the employment contract. A team from Neris Company showed up to ship our gear back to a storage facility on Siren. That was where Mama designated home of record on the employment forms. I didn't really think we had any connection there. It was just the nearest Confederation planet. The storage company would keep our stuff until I failed to make a payment, no doubt. I paid for a year in advance, and my cred reserve was beginning to be worrisome. That was another reason that it was time to go. The sooner I stopped having to pay to live on Neris, the better. Between O'Rourke and the handbook, I'd managed to get my duffel properly stenciled with my name and ID. In the end, I'd kept Mom's computer, a relatively new model portable. It had processing capabilities that my PETA didn't. Her computer credentials gave me an almost unlimited access to the university, and I used them shamelessly until the administration cut off access. I downloaded a bunch of instructional materials on astrogation, environmental sciences, advanced math, accounting, even some material sciences and plant biology, all subjects recommended by the handbook as useful. They looked overwhelming, but I burned them onto cubes anyway and stashed them in my duffel. Even with the hollow and music cubage, it amounted to only about eight kilos. It was a simple matter to toss the few things that were left in the disposer and shoulder the nearly empty duffel bag. At the door I stopped and looked back before flipping the light switch. I could feel a lump start to build in my throat. This had been home for most of my life, and I was walking away forever. The connections had been severed cleanly, even surgically, yet there was still something that made me look around one last time, smiling at the memories and listening for the echoes of our time in the flat. 
In the end I heard nothing except the soft whooshing of the environmentals. I flipped the lights off and locked the door behind me for the last time. After being inside for several days, the light was so bright outside it made my eyes water. When I got to the Union Hall, it was a madhouse. It was the first time I'd seen anybody else there besides O'Rourke or the assistant hall manager, a mousy man named Fredericks, who didn't seem to have a lot to say. This time the hall was filled with people. People queued up to use the data ports, people queued up to talk to O'Rourke or Fredericks, and all of them talking to each other. The huge, echoing space seemed almost catastrophically loud. Shrugging off the sensory assault, I got onto O'Rourke's line and made it to the counter in a surprisingly short time. She smiled when she saw me. You ready to go, kid? she asked softly. There's no backing out once you're under articles. I nodded. I knew the drill from the handbook. I'd, I knew that once I'd signed on the line, I'd not be free until I'd served two years. It wasn't quite the military, but it was close. My mouth was gummy and my stomach was cramped up, but I also knew I had few choices and that this was a door to a new future. I'm as sure as I can be, O'Rourke. Thanks for everything. She smiled wider at that. Good to go, then, lad. She pressed the buzzer that opened the counter and nodded at a door. Through there. Captain Chagone will want to talk to you. Pass the interview and we can get you processed. She winked. I put in a good word for you, so don't make me look bad, kid. Swallowing hard, I pushed through the gate and walked into the office. Behind the desk was a harried-looking gray hair. She looked older than Mom, but seemed somehow more energetic. I stood braced in front of the desk in what I hoped was a convincing spacer manner and waited to be acknowledged. The captain looked at me for just a few seconds while I did my best not to shake. Sound off, she barked. Wang, Ishmael, unrated, applying for available quarter-share berth, SAR, I replied the way O'Rourke had coached me. She had me practice the drill several times on my last visit, so I knew what was expected. The handbook also provided instructions on how to address various officials under various circumstances, and this precise scenario was listed, complete with a sample script. Why do you want to ship out, she asked. I need to get off planet before the company kicks me off, sir. I have no skills and not enough creds to buy passage, and I need to get some time to think about what happens next. Belatedly, I remembered to add, Captain. You know this is going to be very difficult, Huang. I nodded. Excuse me, Wong, did you say something? She barked. Um, yes, sir, that is, no, sir, that is. I know it's going to be difficult, Captain. Gods, what a jerk I sounded. She looked at me for a moment. O'Rourke says you're good people, Wong. Why would she say that? She asked gently. That wasn't in the script, and I blinked in astonishment. I I don't know, Captain. I've, I've only met her a couple of times. She's been very helpful. After a moment, she said, You need to know I run a tight ship and I put up with no crap. You'll be the lowest of the low, and you will work your fanny off for the next two years. The work will be boring, difficult, and unrelenting. Your shipmates will taunt you, and the living conditions will be challenging for somebody used to having his own room on a nice, quiet planet. In short, lad, your ass is mine, and will be until I say it's not, or your contract expires, whichever comes first. Can you deal with that, Landrat? I paused for a second, perhaps two, before answering her. She had summed it up rather brutally. I had no idea which quarter-share berth I was applying for, and it didn't really matter. I needed to get off the rock, and I had few choices. Honestly, I don't know, Captain. I'd like to give it my best shot. She smiled warmly, then. Good answer, Ishmael. Welcome aboard. She stuck out her hand, and I shook it. You get a standard contract, steward attendant pay, plus quarter-share. Do well, and I've always got slots open for good people. Go get your contract signed and your ship suit on. We'll get you settled in while the Blackhearts you'll be bunking with are off the ship drinking away their pay. Thank you, Captain. 
I told her, and I meant it. After that, space-time shifted into screech speed. I thumbed my contract and was officially under articles and employed by Federated Freight, Lois McKendrick's company. Fredericks, the assistant hall manager, was brutally effective in punching through the paperwork, setting up the notifications to Naris Company, and snipping off the few dangling threads of my old life. He showed me to a changing room. O'Rourke had taken my measurements earlier, and the local fabs had whipped up a ship suit and boots in federated freight colors of green and gold. The suit fit my meter and a half perfectly, and the ship boots molded to my size twelves like they were grown there. As I packed my shore-leave clothes into the duffel, I caught movement out of the corner of my eye. A stranger stared back at me from what I suddenly realized was a mirror. He looked me over from the sandy mop on the top of my head down across the tailored ship suit to my new boots. I looked thin after three weeks of eating my own cooking, but Mom had always said I was wiry, and that was apparently a good thing. The stranger smiled, and I found myself smiling back. He straightened up and shouldered his duffel. I gave him a kind of salute and headed out the crew-only door to find the shuttle up to the orbital. The hallway outside led to a security checkpoint, then an entry tube. This wasn't the nice neutral-colored and carefully padded entry tube I was used to in the passenger port. Mom and I had taken trips up to the orbital before. It was a popular tourist destination, being technically Confederation space and not Naris Company. The shops and restaurants were sufficiently exotic to be a draw from the largely homogeneous everyday life on Naris. By comparison, this behind-the-scenes look was stark. There were no decorative panels on the floors, even the walls, had a certain gritty feel to them, not dirty exactly, not dirty at all, in fact, but having a kind of utilitarian plainness that I found disconcerting at first. Pipes, electrical runs, hydraulic lines, all labeled clearly but exposed. After the passenger port's careful pastel decor, the crew tube was strange but refreshingly more real. All this splashed across my brain in that fast, slow mode where everything was progressing at light speed around me, but where I seemed to be moving in a kind of paradoxical slow motion. In the next blink I'd stowed my duffel in the overhead and was strapping down to a well-worn shuttle seat. Again the shuttle was at once familiar and strange, like the difference between a passenger flitter and a cargo crawler. Even the seat belts were different with a cross-the-chest X harness instead of the single shoulder belt I was used to. It was easy enough to figure out, just different. It was going to take some getting used to. My eye kept wanting to see one thing, but the starkness of everything kept jarring my brain. The shuttle pilot came through the cabin, smiled, and nodded professionally at me as he examined the inside of the craft. "'We'll be up in the orbital in just a few ticks,' he said. "'No time for beverage service, but if you need to use the head, I'd do it now.' This was apparently some kind of joke, because he chuckled. Uh, "'Thanks,' I answered, somewhat dazedly. As he was finishing his inspection, a half-dozen other ship-suited people came into the cabin and strapped down. They were not in the green and gold I had already associated with Federated Freight, but a gray and blue. Small patches on their shoulders read Mermanks, and I assumed that was the name of another of the ships docked at the orbital. They nodded pleasantly enough to me, but were absorbed in chatting up one of their own group, who apparently had been engaged in some misadventure overnight. She seemed embarrassed by the attention, but the group appeared to be teasing her in good fun, and she was giving as good as she was getting. My ears popped as the pressure doors closed and the locking rings thumped away from the hall. The speakers gave a ping-ping-pong sound, and a woman's voice said, Secure for lift. With no more ceremony than that, we were underway and boosting into the clear golden afternoon sun. 
I took one last look out the port at the ranks of granapple vineyards, arrayed across the landscape as we boosted spinward, clawing up out of the gravity well. The acceleration pressure pinning me to my seat seemed incongruous with the apparent speed reduction as we gained altitude. The shuttle rolled then, and I couldn't see the ground, just the darkening sky and a bit of the stubby wing flashing red from the blinking navigational lights along the side of the ship. The engine noise ramped back as we climbed, and the air outside became thinner. Soon the only sound conduction was from the airframe itself. I settled down in my seat and zoned out completely until the heavy clunks of the docking clamps shuttered the craft. The trip had taken a full stand, but my warped time sense made it feel like a tick. The cabin speakers gave a pong-ping sound, and the other passengers were unbuckling even before the woman's voice said, "'Docking complete!' I let them clear away before I hit the releases and retrieved my nearly empty duffel. Outside the shuttle bay waited a kid in green and gold chipsuit like mine. He was probably older than me, actually, but he had a baby face that made him look younger. He grinned when he saw me and held out his hand. "'You must be Huang,' he said. "'I'm Philip Carstairs. Everybody calls me Pip.' He wasn't quite as tall as me, but he was broad across the shoulders in a way that I'll never be. His green eyes had a laugh in them, and I found myself grinning back. "'Hi,' I replied. "'Call me Ishmael.' He blinked at me a couple of times, then looked at a note on the tablet he was carrying, before laughing, "'Oh, my gods and garters, that's really your name!' I was used to the reaction. Somehow, coming from this guy, it didn't seem so bad. Yeah, I admitted a bit sheepishly, my mother had a sense of humor. He clapped me on the shoulder then and nodded back down the passage. The first mate sent me over to collect you. Let's get you settled aboard and you can tell me all about it. You don't snore, do you? The hyperspeed sensation wasn't being helped by his gatling gun style of conversation. Snore? Yeah, snore. Gilly, the guy whose birth you're getting? Gods, but did he snore. I don't think I've gotten a good night's sleep since we left Albert. I don't know, I replied. I, um, never noticed. He laughed again. Well, then, we'll let you know. Pip led me through the utility corridors halfway around the orbital. We left the shuttle bays and moved into commercial dock space. It didn't seem quite so spartan there, but perhaps I was growing used to the blatant utility exhibited at every turn. It was already beginning to feel right, somehow. It wasn't far to the ship's lock, but I was conscious of my old life spooling out behind me. Each step took me further into an unknown world. I was beginning to get a bit, not scared exactly, but anxious. The what-have-I-done feeling was just settling around my lungs when Pip stopped at a lock. On the telltale above, it read Lois McKendrick and 5109071600, which I assumed was a departure date and time. Pip swiped his ID chip and tapped a quick code on his tablet. The status light flipped to green and the lock cycled open. We stepped in quickly as the lock started to cycle close behind us. The inner door was already open and a crewman looked up from her screen on a station just inside the hall. Hey, Pip, she called. This the greenie? Pip butted knuckles with her and answered, Yep. Sandy, meet Ishmael Wang. Ish, Sandy Belterson. Her dark brown hair and ice blue eyes were an odd combination. Added to the distinctly olive skin tones, she was an anomaly on two legs. She nodded with a friendly smile and said, Welcome aboard, Ish. I nodded a greeting and answered something I don't remember but must have been adequate. She turned to Pip. Mr. Maxwell wants to meet with him in the office, Pip. He's there now. Pip nodded. Yeah. He messaged me, too. Thanks. Sandy waved and settled back to her reading. As I passed the station, I noticed it was a lesson of some kind. Charts rotated in a simulated 3D while text scrolled rapidly across the bottom of the screen. Pip saw me looking. She's studying for Spec 2 and Astrogation, he explained as we walked deeper into the ship. 
Let's go see Mr. Maxwell so we can get you settled. Aboard the ship, the corridors, passages, I corrected myself, were narrow, barely wide enough for two people to pass. I followed behind Pip as he led me surely through the maze. Every so often he'd comment on a space, environmental section down there, or officer country up here, but little of it stuck, and I hoped there wasn't going to be a test later. He halted suddenly outside a door labeled Office and knocked. A rumbly voice behind the door said, Come. Pip opened the door. This was a door, with a knob and hinges and all, not the airtight hatch and combing that marked most of the passages we'd come through. He stepped into a cramped office space. Attendant Carstairs reporting with Attendant Ishmael Wang, Mr. Maxwell, he said formally. The man behind the desk didn't look up from his screen, but just waved at us, wordlessly indicated we should wait. He was built like a knife, razor edges on his face and hardened steel in his bearing. His hair was buzz-cut and solid gray, not the white gray I was used to seeing at the faculty in Neris, but a hard, dark gray. I don't know if it was a sign of age or just some genetic variation I'd never seen. Whatever it was, it fit him. He wore the green and gold with collar pips and some discreet hash marks around the sleeves which were pushed up to his elbows. He tapped a few keys and the document on his screen closed. Mr. Huang. His head didn't just turn. It swiveled, his eyes tracking like the twin barrels of some odd gun. Precise. Mechanical. Dead. The hair on the back of my neck stood up. The captain has sent me your file, and you'll be assuming the open quarter-share berth in ship's mess. Mr. Carstairs will see you settled in the berthing area and introduce you to the rest of the mess crew. It was a command to Pip, as much as instruction to me, and Pip nodded with a mumbled, Aye, sir. Maxwell continued. It will come as no secret to you that you're taking the place of a crewman who failed to perform to our satisfaction, Mr. Wang. Please see to it that we don't have to provide the same courtesy to you in our next port of call. I saw I'll do my best, I replied, in what I hoped was a steady voice. Dismissed, gentlemen, he said, and swiveled back to his screen, bringing up the next document for review. Pip stepped back into the passage, and I followed as quickly as I could without making it seem like I was running. Pip closed the door and shook his head slightly as I started to speak. My teeth clicked as I shut my mouth, and we headed down the passage the way we'd come. After we'd taken a couple of turns, Pip took a deep breath and said, That went well. I blinked at him. Is he always like that? Pip shook his head. No, he was friendly today. He's usually much colder. That man scared the crap out of me. Are all the officers like that? I didn't remember being afraid of the captain. Odd, maybe, but not afraid. Pip chuckled. No, actually, Mr. Maxwell's pretty decent. You never need to wonder where you stand with him. He was like some kind of robot, I exclaimed quietly. Pip nodded. Yeah, most people say that when they first meet him, he admitted. After you get to know him, you begin to think he really is a robot. He lowered his voice even more. Rumor is that he's ex-spec force. He moves like that because he doesn't want to kill anybody. By that point, I was gaping at him. Close your mouth, Greeny, he chuckled. It may or may not be true, but whatever the case, he's the best first mate I've ever served under. Cold as he seems, he's ruthlessly effective in keeping the ship running efficiently. That's a good thing? I asked cautiously. Yup, Pip nodded. The more efficiently we run, the larger our shares. It's a very good thing. Privately, I wondered if I'd done a wrong thing by signing up, but I squashed that thought as soon as I realized I was having it. It was too late for second thoughts at this point, and I hurried after Pip. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to Episode 2 of Quarter Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper. Music is from The Lucky Black Cat, a hornpipe in A minor, recorded by James Curran, available on the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Durandus, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.5 license. For website and more information on the Golden Age, visit www.durandus.com golden. Thank you.